If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. After watching the politicians blame each other for the chaos that led to the Emergency Act, is it any wonder why Canadians are questioning our institutions? Here's Scott Thompson! Hey! It's Hey! He's on a continuous loop! That's every father's worst nightmare. Boy, what a revolving door it seems to be within the politics of the UK. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's humorous from this view, but imagine living there. To talk about all of this and perhaps get his uh, reaction to what he's seeing at the Inquiry for the Emergencies Act, Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you, Scott. All right, just uh, before we get started on the Emergencies Act, uh, from what we're hearing today, it seems like there's an awful lot of dysfunction within the senior leadership of uh, the Ottawa Police Department and, 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 and city liaison and, and such. Uh, what are your thoughts of what you're seeing so far as a resident of that city? I've lived here all my life, um, and I live uh, two kilometers from where the protest took place back in February, March. Um, I live in the Glebe, uh, which is sort of like the beaches in Toronto. A lot of professors and senior public servants live here and and uh, medical doctors, that sort of thing. Um, and um, I drove downtown during that period. I didn't go right onto Wellington because that was, you know, you couldn't. <laughs> um, and I know people that were down there that lived down there. Um, and I talked to people that did actually walk down there. I mean, onto Wellington. And um, it was so that's the background. Um, and uh, I, uh, there were lots and lots of stories about the dysfunction going on in the Ottawa police long before the protests. Yeah. And there was a lot of conflict. Mayor Watson's a very, uh, although he's been a politician his entire life, and I've known him for 30 years. I've known him personally. I don't mean by that he's my friend. He's not. I've been very critical of him in local media uh, uh, for various reasons that have nothing to do with the protest, uh, including his pro- uh, support for Lansdowne Park. The redevelopment and putting condos in a in a park, sort of like Central Park in New York City, and I didn't think that we should condominiumize the Central Park or or Hyde Park in London. It's the same idea. Um, so uh, th- there was a lot of conflict between uh, him and the police board, and 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 so this dysfunction, if I can call it that, or just let's just call it good old fashioned conflict, disagreements, lots and lots and lots of disagreements were going on long before this protest. So I, 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 you know, my take is very different. And I know people in the Glebe think there was some of them have told me we're on the edge of civil war. And I just I just find it laughable. I'm sorry. I mean, I've studied much younger when I was much younger. I studied the Russian Revolution. I studied the French Revolution. I've been to the Place de la Concorde in Paris, where some 13,000 people were guillotined to death during the French Revolution. And the idea that we were witnessing some kind of a, uh, a, 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 a revolution of revolutionaries from outside is just one of the most preposterous fantasies I can imagine. I mean, I'm not suggesting that what the truckers did was right. They should never no. have allowed those trucks to get downtown in the first place. Yeah. These are great, big, huge 18-wheel trucks. What in God's name were they doing being going downtown? 
But the idea that this was somehow, you know, the French Revolution incarnate or the Russian Revolution redux is just so silly. It is just so silly. They were a bunch of really angry working class people from across Canada who wanted to come to Ottawa and give the finger to Trudeau. That was it. Where was he during all of this? Because I remember he was out with COVID uh, or was had tested negative, but was under protocol. So he wasn't there at the beginning uh, weekend of this. But then he was apparently moved. Do we know where the prime minister was during this this convoy, where he was residing? Was he was it was he within earshot of it all? No, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he was in a safe. Uh, Ottawa's not a very big city, by the way. People don't realize that we're only a million people. We're yeah. a million yeah. people. I mean. You know, we're not we're not London. <laughs> we're not Washington, D.C. <laughs> we're not Toronto. Uh, we're a big, small town is the way I like to put it. And uh, um, and there's a lot. And remember, we straddle the Ottawa, Quebec, uh, the uh, Ottawa downtown is right on the edge mm-hmm. of the Ottawa River. And just across the river is the city of Gatineau, Quebec. And uh, there's lots of government buildings over there, including the prime minister's uh, the the residence at Harrington Lake for the, the official residence for the prime minister. So there's lots of places for him him to go. But um, I, I never, ever, ever thought, and I was watching it all the time and talking to people endlessly, I never thought that this was going to break out into, you know, AK-47s and people going door to door and killing people. This was just a bunch of really angry people who I think pushed it too far and brought in great big honking huge trucks and then they started honking them in the middle of the night. I had, I knew a couple of people in downtown Ottawa who were really angry because their sleep was being disrupted and it was yeah, yeah. it was but yeah. this was not civil war this was not a civil this was not the FLQ crisis which I do remember I was in Ottawa I've lived here all my life and I was 15 years old and let me tell you there were tanks going down the streets of Ottawa in downtown Ottawa and we were scared we were scared I remember it my mother was scared nobody scared this time we were all upset and annoyed our lives were disrupted for sure and but there was nobody thinking oh my god they're trying to overthrow the government of canada that is just the uh the hallucinatory imaginations of some people who became i think unhinged by the experience because they'd never seen anything like that in canada this is the peaceable kingdom remember <laughs> uh, Ian, and we are right out of time. So we're going to have to put talking about Liz Truss being out as the Prime Minister of England another time. But as always, a fascinating discussion with Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Thank you, Ian. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks. This has happened way too often, it seems. And, uh, of course, on the news uh, just the other day of a British Columbia RCMP officer uh, being fatally stabbed. Two officers who died in that shooting in Innisfil, Ontario, remembered today in Barrie, both funerals together for Constable Morgan Russell, 54, and Constable Devin Northrup, 33, of South Simcoe Police, after they were responded to a call at a disturbance in a home. Let's bring in Sean O'Shea. He's up there, senior journalist with global news he's with us now sean thank you for the time i hope you're well thank you very much for having me on scott what i, I we can only imagine what it must be like in barry today i mean my goodness one officer but this is two um what's the scene like and 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 just the uh just the outpouring from not only the community but the policing community as well scott i've covered a few police funerals but never one with two officers and so it was um, in many ways, uh, twice as tragic. Um, there were two caskets with the Canadian flag in the Sadlin Arena in Barrie. Hundreds of people, uniformed officers, 
uh, people from all over the province, from Peel, from Hamilton, from Toronto, from Thunder Bay, saw officers from British Columbia, um, for yet another uh, funeral, as you described, these two officers who died um, by gunfire just a week ago. So the third, uh, these are the third officers, three officers now in the last month have died by gunshot in Ontario. Very sad, very solemn, and the police funeral is very uh, regimented. It has many elements, uh, which include hearing from family members. Uh, we heard from the wives of both officers. We heard from the daughter of one of the officers who was killed. Uh, tender, heartfelt. Um, emotional kinds of comments, and both men were described as very caring, very compassionate. One of the officers, you know, was eligible to retire. He could have left. He was 54. He could have retired, agreed to stay on. They both were described as men who loved their jobs and died, unfortunately, doing them. Uh, but obviously, uh, as you mentioned, there's been a series of these incidents in some form over the last um, uh, couple of weeks and such. Uh, and, and police have been under uh, a lot of scrutiny and attack of late. Uh, the situation and, and, you know, just dealing with a pandemic and a post-pandemic world and such. Do you get the sense that people are looking at this differently now that are coming together once they, you know, it's put right in front of us how uh, realistic the chance is that these people can leave for work and not come home? Well, the, the wife, the widow of, of, of Constable Morgan Russell, made a point at the end of her comments to say, please support their police because they deserve your support. They've earned it. And we heard from another police officer who spoke. I don't recall his name, but he was really appealing to people to look out for other people, people with mental illness in the community, family members uh, whom they've not had contact with. He said, you know, texting somebody's not enough. Call them, get together with them, show compassion. So it was a it was an impassioned plea for the members of the public to to try to reach out to people in the community who have mental health and other kinds of issues, understanding the fact that some of these people, you know, are not um, are not all all right, and also asking people very directly if they knew people who had firearms that that, that they should not have or that could be problematic to to get in touch with those people to get in touch with the police. Haven't heard that in such a direct way uh, until this funeral these funerals today but uh, that was part of the sentiment here because there is a growing a growing sense of frustration i think with people in the community in general that these funerals are happening so frequently and that people in general don't feel as safe as they they should feel any insight from any of the officers there what it's like to have to go through this to 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 be at a, a funeral like this we talked to an Ottawa police officer. There were about 30 that came from the Capitol today to to attend here. We interviewed him just before the funeral, and he said that it was important to show the support and that they really feel a sense of, of community and, and that, that this is about showing, as you can imagine, support for the families and support in a greater way for, for other officers. But but they he admitted that, that, you know, they're feeling pressure. There's so much social media pressure on many parts of society, from people in the media to politicians to many in the police and community, that you know he reflected that 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 feeling is there, and so the support you get when you come together and you, as a group deal with something as tragic as this is important. But uh, to the earlier point about what to do, um, you know there is no one single solution here. But I thought it was quite striking that that he made an appeal. Uh, this officer did at the funeral and made an appeal to people to try to look out for each other more and specifically mentioned firearms that, that could be out there that, uh, hmm. that might be problematic. 
Uh, obviously, this is being investigated uh, still. Any more new information or any information onto the investigation and uh, or or the suspect or what more happened in that home? Nothing really of significance, I don't think. As you know, the Special Investigations Unit keeps these investigations where police officers are involved uh, pretty pretty quiet. They don't give much information out until uh, until uh, the appropriate time. So w- what we know is, is what happened, that these officers didn't draw their firearms, didn't fight back, and that the, the person who killed these police officers was, was killed by another police officer. Um, and yet, you know, we also heard about these officers. I thought it was quite striking that, one of the officers, um, I, I believe it was, um, I believe it was Constable Northrup, was was not known as somebody who showed up early, but he went to work hmm. early that day, and uh, you know, the other officer stayed late, uh, in spite of the fact that he could have gone home early, and his day was basically done. But when this call came in, he took the call and assigned himself on it. So you got a real picture of of two officers hmm. who uh, weren't just mailing it in. They didn't just show up for work yeah. at home. These guys were both described as people that really loved their job and that they were in turn really beloved by the people in the community here. And, I mean, you were speaking earlier, Sean, about you have covered these before, but never a double funeral of a police officer. And here's, if I'm going to try to ask this as sensitive as I can, have you ever been in a situation like this where you're covering a funeral and then another officer falls in B.C., and this is going to be happening again in, in a short period of time. Well, Scott, that was addressed. One of the speakers pointed that out in, in the comments that he made at the podium. One of the, one of the people who knew one of these officers you know, reflected and, and said it's happened there and, and named that officer in, in British Columbia, that member of the RCMP. And so they do know it will happen again. The question is when, and the question is, is there anything that can be done in a significant way to try to prevent that from happening again? But they know. That's why I said earlier that there's a, a ritual to these funerals uh, that I've seen before. They're very, they're, they're very similar, although the cases are very different, and the people are, of course, very different. But as much as it is honoring the officers that have, have lost their lives, it's about uh, honoring the people who do the job every day and about saying, you know, we don't have the luxury of just staying home. We have to go and do these jobs that are expected of us in the community, and uh, we accept the fact that there are risks. And in spite of that, we want people to do what they can to try to help us do our jobs and produce, possibly reduce those risks. Very difficult, but they know that these, these will be happening again. Sean O'Shea with us, senior journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this on the funerals of Constable Morgan Russell and Constable Devin Northrup of the South Simcoe Police Service. Sean, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, trying to get as many of the candidates back in as we can before the municipal elections coming up on Monday, October 24th. Bob Bertina is with us now, former mayor of Hamilton, former liberal MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, and now mayoral candidate again. He's with us. Bob Bertina, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, not as good as you, though. You're probably in one of those recliner beds, you know, at home. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm out in the hustings, knocking on doors. So uh, I kind of envy you a little yeah, bit. 
You know, one of those ones with the, uh, you know, the automatic feet go up and down, the heating pads and all. That's, that's exactly what I'm looking. Yeah, it's a little bit different from when you were here, Bob. All right, but I digress. Okay. Uh, recent polling out from Main Street shows that Andrea's out front, uh, Keenan in behind there, and you trailing the uh, the end. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? What are your Well, what are your thoughts? Let's leave it at that. Well, CB, the CBC rejected the poll. Uh, it wasn't adequate in their terms of, of how it was formed. Um, I was uh, going to get wiped out as a counselor. I, Wayne Marsden was going to beat me easily. Um, I was always like in third place and I always won. So we really disregard the polls because if you drove around the city, Scott, you would see an awful lot of Bob Bertina signs and more going up. I think we put up about 10 signs today. We put about 10 signs around the stadium the other day. We're going to go back down that area. Knock on the door. Hello, Bob. Yes, please. Um, we support you. Put a sign. So whatever you see published, you know, they've got an agenda, too. Let's put it that way. So so I'm quite happy with the way things are going, and I'll be very content with whatever uh, the voters say on Monday. Uh, recent uh, our news today in regard to John Tory saying that uh, he may toll or look at tolling roads like the DBP. Uh, we're asking all the candidates, would you be doing that on the link or the Red Hill? Thoughts on that? No tolls there, no. Uh, costs for people, I mean, there is a consideration that if there's, let's say, uh, large trucks on their way to Windsor just driving through and using the hill, uh, you might consider that. But I don't know how you would really um, set that up. So, no, our cost of living is, is way too high in the city, never mind Canada. So, no, I wouldn't do it. Uh, all uh, earlier this week, talking about police support, uh, where did this come from? It didn't seem to be an issue uh, at this point, but you brought it forward in your support for the police. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, I, it came from me from the very beginning. Uh, other than the city hall is broken and we've got to fix the administration, I was totally against the people, such as uh, the other two leading candidates who don't seem to like the police or words to that effect, because there's defunding, detasking, you know, moving resources around. The fact is that we do not have a, a sufficient police officers based on the statistics of uh, the ratio of police to population. We're 50 to 60 police officers short and the city's getting more dangerous. Last year was the most uh, homicides um violent crime statistics are drastically up and people don't feel safe they tell me that at the door so that that's where that's coming from last few days of this uh campaign what is the message you're trying to get out what do you want uh hamiltonians to know about bob bertina in the last couple of days of this well i guess i the main thing other than what i just mentioned is the administration is broken and we need um adequate and effective policing by properly resourcing the police i would say look at my record you know in the four years that i was on council there are so many things that happened i i defy you to tell me which mayor since the uh, year 2000 has put more buildings up more projects uh more good things for the city like the west harbor go station like the, the stadium like the randall reef project like getting McMaster downtown, like solving the buses on the Gore and getting the McNabb um, transit station properly uh, operating with uh, uh, heated uh, sidewalks so you don't have to shovel them in the wintertime. 
And on and on and on. You don't want to hear the whole list. But so, are, really, do you think there's more dysfunction at City Hall now than when you were there? Well, it's certainly there was a lot of it at that time. And and I, if you gave me a half an hour, I could go into extreme detail on on how things don't work properly. But there's no question about it. I mean, who leaves the the sewer gate open for four years? Uh, who spends twenty six million dollars trying to find out? Uh, who said what to who with regard to the slippery pavement. And now we've got the the email scandal, you know, the invasion of privacy, putting people's emails out there and and basically screwing up the, the mail-in vote thing. Uh, people not getting their ballots in time. Well, uh, I opened my ballot and says it should have sent it in already. So that is indicative, a pretty simple message, and it hasn't been lost on the people I've been talking to at the door especially people in business who know you can't get business done sometime in the city of Hamilton. Bob Bettina with us, former mayor of Hamilton, trying again, former liberal MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek. Bob, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Okay, thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in on Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce. He has announced the next steps in the province's plan for getting students caught up. Comes in the form of money for tutoring, I believe, but let's ask him. Stephen Lecce, Ontario Education Minister, is with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks so much, Scott. Good to be back. So this is 200 to $250, and is this for tutoring? How does this work? Sure. So the first point is, you know, we know learning loss is real. We've seen it in English. Uh, rather in, 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 you know, reading and writing and math, we've seen it across the board and around the world. And so we developed a plan, Ontario's plan, to catch up. Part of it was to increase support for school boards to expand tutoring, which we announced today, and to expand staffing. But in addition, I do believe, and our premier believes, that parents who take such an important responsibility and role in supporting and educating their child, that they too need relief. It's a tough economic time with inflation and the cost of living. And so, yes, we're providing $200 for every child, 0 to 18, and then $250 for kids that have special education needs all the way up to age 21. Uh, and that funding can be spent wherever parents uh, believe it will make the greatest difference in the life of their child. We've done this before, Scott. We've done $1.6 billion of direct financial support. And quite frankly, parents have really welcomed it. They said, look, anything you can do, it helps, even if it's incremental. Appreciate that the majority of our investment today is actually going to go to our publicly funded school boards, but I just think we should do both. Uh, so is this sent to parents or is this something you apply for? So parents would apply as they have done the last three times we've done this. They apply online. It's Ontario.ca forward slash catch up payments. You can go right now, Scott, like any parent listening. You have a child under 18 or 21, up to 21 with special education. Apply right now. It will take roughly two to three weeks. It's direct deposits in your bank. Uh, and it's rather efficient, probably three to four minutes it takes to do the application. And then parents use the dollars as you believe uh, it best can make a difference when it comes to your schools. I know some parents will probably use it on technology, on after-school literacy programs, after-school math programs. Um, there's a whole bunch. I mean, just at the Boys and Girls Club, they have very affordable programming, week, two-week programs that could be done uh, with uh, areas focusing on literacy and numeracy. So we're giving parents choice, but more importantly, we're saying to them, we know you play an important role in the life of your child, and we're going to help you get through this difficulty. So you could use this to put this towards uh, technology, like buying uh, uh, whatever they need for school, a uh, laptop, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe a software it could be for technology. It could be for an application. I mean, obviously, today, we're not just providing money to parents. That's the big hook, because it's a $370 million expenditure. And we've done this before. 
Uh, and obviously, you know, uh, we believe, I mean, I know the, the Democrats and liberals and frankly, the unions are, are not particular fans of this, but I, I'm a believer that the government should be on the side of families and we should be providing financial relief at a time of difficulty. And that's why I think this program is going to be very positively received. It's easy to apply. The dollars go direct. And I believe in addition to the financial support we're providing to families, we're also stepping up supports for math. Uh, with respect to helping uh, improve math outcomes and literacy outcomes. I mean, next September, Scott, kids from kindergarten to grade two will be one of the only provinces, as I understand, in Canada to do it. We're going to literally screen kids' reading capability in their youngest years, like an actual screening tool in the classroom for every child, K to two. That's new. That's frankly not really done in this country uh, in a mainstream way, and it's going to be a massive program designed to understand where are those gaps, where are those kids that need a bit more support, and then let's place more additional investments in staffing to help get them on track. So it's an all-of-the-above approach. It's a comprehensive approach, and, and I think it's going to help. Your thoughts on the uh, EQAO, uh, the math uh, re- uh, results that we're seeing, that obviously math scores have uh, faltered during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, we've seen globally from the United Kingdom to the United States in every province in this country that has standardized testing, every Western jurisdiction, it's the same story. The pandemic was horribly disruptive. Remember, in Ontario, we uniquely had to deal with strikes by unions preceding the pandemic. So it really was a pretty crazy two, three years for these kids and their parents. And thus, that's why I believe the first principle of getting kids back on track, of fixing this learning loss challenge that may be global in scope, it has to start with keeping them in school. Like, I mean, Scott, nothing should be more important. The biggest solution to this problem is stability. Get them in front of their teacher. Get them learning the curriculum. Provide the supports and the resources and staffing, yes, but keep them so, there. So how, are, That's where, yeah. so how are the negotiations going with the support workers? We know that uh, things are pretty tense right now. Yeah, I mean, look, and they often are tense and during negotiations with every government, so that's not unique, but it is, uh, I think, frustrating for parents because the hope was that the teacher union, that the education union would bring forth a reasonable proposal. We gave them one with the expectation they're going to bring back one to us, um, part of this private mediation, and they haven't budged on a nearly 50% increase in pay. There's just no one listening today that can tell me uh, in honesty that they're receiving, you know, 12, 14, 16% annual increases over the course of a three-year program. I don't know anyone in this economy. And so while I value them, I'm prepared to maintain the best pension, the best benefit program, um, 131 paid sick days, and I'm going to pay them more every single year, 2% on average, over the course of our contract, which, frankly, we believe is reasonable and affordable. When I hear unions say, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to strike, I just think that's unacceptable and it needs to be called out for what it is. Uh, kids deserve to be in school. And the data from EKO to your last question is so relevant to this discussion because they shouldn't be out of class. We should not be compounding the problem. The union should save the table. Work with us. Let's get a deal we could all live with that keeps these kids in school. All right, Minister, I have to, I can't let you go without asking you the question. Uh, in Halton, the OT teacher at Oakville Trafalgar, right. uh, apparently going through transition. Obviously, that's a delicate situation, personal. We don't want to go there. What the concerns are, are the dress right. and the, the uh, attire of this person, including the large prosthetic breasts and such. And, and, and many parents are concerned that this is just still ongoing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I share the concerns of many parents in the province, the overwhelming majority, I think, that want a higher standard of professionalism. Uh, I have, as you know, I wrote to the Ontario College of Teachers and the ministry, the government will be taking action to make sure that standards, professional standards, dress codes, things like this 
are strengthened um, so that kids can focus on learning and that school boards and communities and as children and their parents and the staff are not distracted, uh, but they remain focused on what school's about, which is a place to learn the basics and the foundations of building a life. So uh, a good life and a good and getting a good job. So I understand the concerns. Trust me, it's why we've acted quickly and swiftly. And I assure you we'll be bringing forth a much stronger provision um, that better reflects, I think, uh, what parents demand uh, and what kids deserve. Stephen Lecce with us, Ontario Education Minister. Minister, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Keenan Loomis is with us, Hamilton mayoral candidate. He's here now. Don't forget, coming up Monday, we need your vote. Everyone needs you to get out and vote and voice your opinion. October 24th, Monday, is Municipal Voting Day in Ontario. Keenan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing great. The winds of change are blowing in the city of Hamilton right now. Boy, it certainly is turning into be a very exciting campaign. Uh, the 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 buzzword today was tolling coming out of Toronto with Mayor Tory. You obviously, I think you've uh, been on record as saying no, you're not going to go in, in into that sort of thing. But what about repairing and getting new pavement and doing paying the bill for this highway that ends up kind of costing us ten times more than than what it should have? Maybe this might be a great idea, Keenan. Are you overlooking this? Well, you know what, I, Scott, I'm just fix, uh, focused on fixing the damn roads here in Hamilton. Let's do that first. All right. So uh, yesterday, two terms. You said you'd only serve for two terms. We put this to Andrea Horvath. She said she's just trying to get elected for one, and we'll let the people decide moving forward. Uh, why the uh, bringing up two terms at this point? Well, well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm running against career politicians here, and I think it's important to point out to, to folks that. I'm committed to getting the city back on track, and, and that's why I'm doing it. So I'm doing this for the right reasons. I'm not going to be a career politician. Um, I'm going to be a mayor for, for everyone committed to the residents, not my own interests. And, you know, good leaders uh, have a way of cultivating uh, leadership and then leaving it to the next generation of leaders. And, uh, um, and by the, besides the fact, uh, my, my wife won't let me serve more than eight years. So uh, it's, it's kind of a, 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 a wife-imposed uh, term limit. <laughs> hey, that's, you know, that might be stronger than any politics, that's for sure. <laughs> what, what do people love you and they want you to come back and you're, you're having great success? Well, I think eight years is enough. And again, I'm, I'm going to, you know, really be focused on, on cultivating and building uh, more leaders here in this community. Um, and then uh, we'll be leaving it in good hands uh, with a, a whole group of, of young people with a great vision for, for the city of Hamilton. Uh, housing continues to come up as a, uh, a major issue in this uh, election. Keenan, how are you going to balance uh, the NIMBYism, uh, the councillors who have uh, residents they want to uh, obviously keep happy versus the housing situation that we have? Uh, is there enough? I don't believe there's enough. I, don't, I haven't heard an expert that says there's enough infield to, to do all of this, enough uh, space in the, within the city to, 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 to solve the housing a situation just with that that being said how do you balance this well you know yeah it's absolutely we're hearing this uh from across the city that uh, people want to keep the urban boundary where it is but that means that we have to be able to allow for building uh you know within the current urban boundary and, and infill development and we do have a lot of uh space uh, Scott, you know, certainly you look at downtown and you look at uh, what we're doing at the waterfront. Uh, really, if you just add up all of the things that we're working on right now or are in the pipeline right now, things that, you know, developers want to get built um, and that aren't getting built because they're being held up by City Hall, 
I think that uh, you know that's enough to address uh, the demand over the next little bit. And we got to really work on uh, creating those transit corridors that will allow us to to build more. And uh, so I, I think it can be done. Again, let's just focus on on the things that uh, the people want to do right here, right now, and that'll satisfy a good amount of the demand that exists right now. Uh, we're also getting and hearing, hearing a lot of stories, getting email and such about the gentrification that's going on. And, you know, I, I, I've been here long enough to know this was going to be a problem decades ago uh, when Hamilton was in a depressed situation, many services brought here and such, and, and, and Hamilton fell behind uh, other jurisdictions all around it in regard to uh, price of housing and, and that sort of thing. Now, obviously, the population, as it comes around from the greater Toronto area, is is obviously driving prices up in this area. What do we do regarding gentrification and, you know, landlords that come in and just push people out? Well, again, you know, like, so this is the, the they're meeting demands uh, for people who are wanting to settle here in Hamilton. And so, you know, that's, that's really important. Um, but, you know, the, the things I'm focused on are, especially this week, I've been spending a lot of time in the suburban and rural communities um, and, you know, they just want uh, simple services provided. Um, they want uh, they want uh, rec centers. Um, they want, uh, you know, to, to also feel safe in their communities. Um, so, in fact, uh, today we were excited to be able to release a, a four point suburban and rural action plan um, that addresses the concerns of uh, our suburban and rural areas that have been uh, overlooked for far too long. And I was really happy to get the uh, endorsement of uh, Councillor Judy Partridge for our action plan. And uh, Judy's been a, a huge champion for the rural and suburban communities. Um, she's been a, an incredible voice for them. And uh, I'll work with her uh, after the election as well as she uh, moves on into the next uh, phase of her career. So people want to, you know, there's a lot of issues that uh, people want to have uh, dealt with and they want City Hall to be focused on, you know, the challenges that we have and all the great opportunities that we have here in this community. More opportunities than we have had in decades, but it takes a, a leader who has vision and who can bring people together. Um, and, you know, the, the, it's, it's really incredible right now, Scott. We're, we're getting um, a lot of dirty politics thrown our way. It's, um, hmm. it's, it's really unseemly. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's it, what is uh, uh, really ironic and, and the hypocrisy is, is just glaring here is that, um, you know, I, I've been the one, I guess, because I was born in the U.S., uh, the one accused of uh, U.S. style politics. And, and yet we haven't run one single negative ad. And um, then my my son uh, today comes to me and says, Dad, I, I was just on YouTube and uh, I, I saw a dirty ad, uh, you know, aimed at you. And I thought, you know, that's that's really incredible that. Uh, we're the ones running the, the for that optimistic uh, future and, and vision for the city. And it is our opponents that are exposing Hamilton's children to uh, gutter politics. And I, I just think that that is um, that needs to be called out. That's absolutely disgusting. The fact that you are from uh, you're not born and raised in Hamilton. How much does that come up on, on the campaign trail? How much of a challenge has that been for you? Well, in fact, I, I think that, you know, we, we have had so many people come up to us since the debate um, that have been insulted by, uh, you know, my, my competitor um, who, are, who have contributed to this community, who wondered to me uh, jokingly, I don't know, I've only lived here for 20 years. I don't even know if I'm allowed to vote. 
uh, in this community. <laughs> and um, so, you know, in fact, I, I think that it really has galvanized uh, a large uh, swath of uh, the, the population here in Hamilton that weren't from here. And I also get a lot of people who, you know, have been born and raised here in Hamilton who, uh, who apologize for that because it's just a, a real, really chauvinistic um, sort of viewpoint. Um, so, you know, again, we're, we're focused on, on the optimistic vision that we have uh, for this community and people are really galvanized. That's why there's, there's so much excitement, right? Because, you know, people don't want politics as usual. They're, they're seeing the, the dirtiness of it. Uh, they're tired of it. They know that uh, if we elect career politicians, we're just going to get more of the same uh, in this community and, and we're done with it. Let's, let's focus on the future. And, and focus on all the great things that Hamilton has uh, in its future. Kenyon Loomis with us, Hamilton mayoral candidate. As we head into the last weekend of campaigning, don't forget to get out and exercise your, ro- uh, your right to vote on Monday, October 24th. Keenan, thanks for your time. Good luck moving forward. Thanks, Scott. Change is coming to City Hall on October 24th. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, watching the inquiry for the Emergency Act is uh, is sometimes painful, sometimes greasy, sometimes dirty, sometimes laughable. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, there's nothing laughable about it when you think of uh, what the people of uh, Ottawa had to endure. Uh, but now we're seeing with testimony, uh, including today from the uh, deputy police chief, uh, just complete dysfunction and 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 conflict between senior police officials, uh, the the police services board, and the city itself. Um, the city, uh, the police thinking this is all going to the cheap route. They're thinking that this is all going to be over in a weekend. And uh, the other side saying, but there's no plan B if they decide to stay, which, of course, they did. Uh, to talk more about all of this, John Vieb Tellier with us, professor of School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Uh, Jean Vieb, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you very much. Your thoughts on what you've seen so far? Uh, kind of like you, uh, it's, everything is going on. Well, it's a good show in the sense that you have everything for a drama. Uh, but at the same time, it was a real drama. And, and now we start to understand a bit more what was going on. Now, it's not reassuring in the sense that uh, the Ottawa police was not working uh, well. And so we cannot understand. There were many signals. I mean, uh, one piece of information that was important this week was that um, hotelier in the, um, in the city were saying, well, we have demand requests uh, for rooms uh, extending for many weeks and months from uh, coming from thousands of people. So they, they are planning to stay here for a long time. And this information was provided to the city, to the police. And it seems that no one acted uh, accordingly uh, within the police, uh, Ottawa police. So how has this occurred? Um, uh, it, it's really troublesome. And so uh, the testimony of uh, people within the Ottawa police has started today. And I think we will hear many other persons for many other days, For I think for the whole uh, next week. Uh, but it's not very pleasant and, and reassuring what we are hearing now uh, with, with this inquiry. Obviously, early on, we heard a, uh, a private phone call between the Ottawa mayor and Justin Trudeau and, and shaming Doug Ford for hiding. Now we're finding out as early as January 13th, the OPP were warning the uh, Ottawa Police Service and providing them with intelligence that this was going to uh, be a longer stay and still uh, there was no plan. So getting back, should Doug Ford testify and, and who 
who picks who testifies? How how do you get your invite? Uh, you know what? When I saw the list uh, the, when it was published initially, I was that was my surprise. Was how come Doug Ford is not on the list? <laughs> you've got Mayor Watson, you've got uh, Premier uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, and and Doug Ford was a major player in that. Um, so he said publicly, Doug Ford said publicly that he was not asked to testify. Now it's not for him to decide. And so if uh, Justice Rouleau and his commission uh, people wants him to testify, then he has no choice than to do so. Now what we have heard from the commissioner is that time is very limited, and so and it seems to be very much a frustration for the for the Justice Rouleau. And uh, because of limited time, uh, probably he had to select who he will call and not call. And probably um, Doug Ford, his testimony wouldn't add many new information. And so the information he would be able to provide could be obtained by other people. And so there is probably this constraint that is playing um, here. Now, it, it goes to the to the mandate of the commission. And so uh, many are worried that it's going too fast and we won't go into the, the heart of the matter on, on several issues and should have Doug Ford been asked to testify. I, I, personally, I think so. And maybe he will because the, the list is not definite. Uh, it's not, it's not uh, solid in the sense that uh, new names could be added on, on the list. And so we'll Do see. Do you think... Do you think that the, what works against that argument is the OPP has already been heavily involved and, and obviously has said several times that they were trying to provide information and the OPS just didn't seem to be interested in any of that? So, you know, again, if if they're not taking the information, if they're not participating with what the OPP is doing, what more can the Solicitor General do? Or the premium. Yes, that yes, that 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 could be a good, a solid argument. Uh, uh, however, people here in Ottawa are saying, are thinking, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, uh, uh, we haven't seen that Ford, or it took time. And so there was a problem, uh, an issue with Ottawa. But how come the premier acted so quickly when Witzar was concerned and the ambassador bridge was blocked, but uh, no action were taken uh, that were similar for Ottawa? And so that's a kind of question that I think the people, at least in Ottawa. I would like to hear uh, the Premier talk about. Uh, but yes, uh, apart from that, many other uh, facts are, are now known. And so, yes. And, and the issue, as you said, was, is it the, the hand of the Ottawa police? And so uh, those are the primary actors. And that's where uh, things did not go well. Um, Doug Ford could have intervened maybe a bit earlier. But as you said, the OPP seems to have tried that and it didn't work so what else could have it done um i don't know uh, that being said doug ford did also uh, implement the emergency act in ontario so there was a provincial emergency act and then there was a federal emergency act now in the province we had that act before with covid so it was not kind of a new yeah. thing as it was with the federal government but there were there are some gray zone i would say that could be interesting to push a bit more if we have that do we, as a witness. John Viev, do we know where the Prime Minister was during the convoy? We remember he was exposed to someone with COVID and had to go into uh, protocol, but he was tested negative. 
Um, but he really wasn't around vocally for the first week of this. Where was he staying? Where was he residing? Because there was some rumor that they he they, they had taken him to away to a different place other than Rio yes. Cottage. Do we know where 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 the prime minister was spending his time during the convoy? I, I, personally, I don't know, but we will know it with the testimony of Justin Trudeau. So he will be called. He he is called, and he will testify. And I'm sure we will ask his, the, the question. Now it seemed at the time, if I recall. Well, in February and end of January, we were concerned about the security of the prime minister because of all those manifestants that were coming to uh, to Ottawa. So, but then the question is, if the prime minister, if the security of the prime minister was a concern, how come that also was not yeah. a factor that should have played for the Ottawa police? And so, uh, so that, those are very legitimate questions. It just seemed, it just seemed right for me, John Viev, for the prime minister in his phone call with the mayor to use the word hiding, <laughs> because many <laughs> said the prime minister was hiding. And, and you know what? All politics, and that's the sad side of that, that commission is that yeah. it is politicized up to a point. And so we saw that in the phone exchange between the, uh, the mayor Watson and, and Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, and so at the beginning of the crisis, the first week, it was highly politicized and politicians didn't know on what foot stand in the sense mm. that what should I do? And so they preferred to wait a bit, to wait and see and, and see how things were was unfolding. Um, now, of course, that's not what we want to see from yeah. the prime minister. And so he will be questioned about that, I'm sure. jean Viev Tallier, Professor, uh, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Thank you for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, tomorrow night, looking forward to this. The Art Gallery of Hamilton going to host a special event and a screening of the documentary Picture My Face, the Story of Teenage Head. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be there along with the uh, director, Douglas Aerosmith, who you're going to meet in just a second, along with the band uh, as well. Uh, going to watch the movie and then do a little Q&A afterwards. So uh, considering what has happened in the last little while and such, uh, obviously a sensitive situation, but uh, either way, a great opportunity to celebrate the legacy of this band and come together as a city. Let's bring in Douglas Aerosmith of Felt Film, executive producer and director of Picture My Face, the story of Teenage Head, and is with us now. Doug, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me. How would you describe this uh, this doc, this film, to somebody who's uh, living in Hamilton and has enjoyed Teenage Head over the years? Well, I would say at the heart of the film is a close look at the anatomy of friendship. It's it's kind of like, how did these kids find meaning sit, sitting at the back of class, tuned out? Um, how did they survive that? How did they survive high school? Um, uh, they found confidence in each, in each other. They started, you know, tu- they tuned out of class. They started tuning into other things. And, um, you know, they eventually found that music was going to be their map. And it became a map for not only them, so many fans and even other bands as we as we hear in the film. And and actually what makes it poignant is that Hamilton is the backdrop to the story. It's a it's a city bearing witness to these kids as they come of age. You know, it's a it's a little bit of place and of time. Um, and it's it's sort of who made who? The city make the band or did the band make the city? 
So I think, Hmm. um, you know, there's themes like that at the core of it is this, you know, evolving friendship from such a young age. You see that, um, you know, in the film follows that as, you know, the band's attempting to get Gordy back out on the road and helping Gord Uh refine himself from a, you know, what was a struggle with depression uh, through the music, through the work of the music. Uh, and that's really the 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 arc of the film. Obviously, what makes this uh, e- evening tomorrow so fragile, interesting, delicate, exciting, um, and, and tragic all at once is that when this was film when this film was was shot and and, and finished, uh, Gordy Lewis was still with us, and now he's mm-hmm. not. How how does that change this? How does that change how we view this this uh, film? I think it, I mean, it makes his story louder. I think it makes us need to pay closer attention to what was the struggle, you know, he was working with um, as we were, as we were making the film. Um, You know, he's had some history with, you know, depression. And we, we learn about that in the film. Gord wanted to share that story with his audience. Um, and I think what, what's interesting, you know, there, there's a lot of hope in the, in the arc of the film because what we see is, is, is how that, his attachment to how it started in the first place, the early relationships with Steve, Frankie, how important those remained for him. And it was the more, you know, the current band could help him recollect, um, you know, that sense of self, the, the, you know, the more he was drawn out of his depression. And eventually we see in the film, we get back out on the road, we travel with them to Winnipeg. And I think it really, you see how, you, you, you see the happiness that, that Gord experiences with, just practicing that. That's all he wanted to be. Although he said at one point, you know, I don't think this is in the film, but he said he could have been a really good ad guy or marketing. Like he, Mm -hmm. you know, and you see that also in his style, um, always. um, And the hooks of the, and then the, and the hooks of the songs, the hooks of the songs, what he wears, he knows to put, you know, he's Gordy's going to show up with a red ball cap with a green t-shirt because that works, <laughs> you know, like all of it. Um, and you see in that also that early footage, the archival stuff of Heatwave. Just look at, look at, look at the fashion, look at the, you know, and these guys invented yeah. that for themselves. They were, you know, bringing it, sort of clipping it from here and there, but it's really theirs. And it's such a remarkable um, moment in our own history of music and all that just coming out of Hamilton is, is, um, you know, incredible. This is, I should mention, this is the first theatrical screening of the film in Ontario, Hmm. which is exciting. It's exciting for us to have it at the AGH, uh, and in that, in that space, uh, and with their support it's, and, and, uh, and Steve, uh, from the band has actually put together a collage that'll be on exhibit uh, as well as a few stills we have from the film. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think it's it's going to be very heartfelt and it gives the audience a chance 
to talk about some of these themes from the film and the impact you know the band has had on we've only got a few seconds We've only got a few seconds left, Doug. Um, do you feel after doing, and, you know, it's brilliant. I, I love watching this. Do you feel you need to add another chapter? Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a, that's, that's, that's a good question. That's really a good question. I, you know, it, you could, you could, but it's also poignant where it leaves off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a, it's a, that's a thought I've been having, obviously, um, and, and it continues, you know. And this discussion, um, but, yeah. th- we got to cut you off there. This discussion will continue tomorrow uh, at the AGH uh, uh, Art Gallery of Hamilton. It starts at 7 o'clock. You can go on their website and get tickets. They're free, but there is a limited amount, so you got to reserve yours uh, ahead of time. Uh, Doug Aerosmith with us of Felt Film, executive producer, director of Picture My Face, the story of Teenage Head. Uh, first appearance in a theater with this uh, movie, completely remixed, which is going to be great. Doug, very exciting. I can't wait to uh, share this space with you. Uh, tomorrow and talk about the great stories of Teenage Head. We'll see you then. Thanks, Scott. We'll see you tomorrow night. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You no doubt remember the story and Amanda Todd, if not certainly her video of uh, her flipping cards and each one describing um, how she felt or what was going on in her life. And the extraordinary sad news here is um, Amanda Todd, this beautiful BC teenager, died by suicide a decade ago uh, and was bullied online through all of this. And now, after uh, a long, long journey, a 44-year-old Dutch man has been convicted of of sexually extorting Amanda Todd and sentenced to 13 years in prison. And uh, her mother, Carol Todd, has been an advocate in fighting for this since uh, we lost Amanda. And I can't imagine what that journey has been like. But uh, right now, Carol Todd joins us, advocate for awareness on Internet safety, mental health, and online exploitation, and mother of Amanda Todd. Carol, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing as well as I can right now. It, I feel like I'm in a brain fog after the trial that lasted nine weeks and the conviction and then the sentencing and then you think back to the 10 years since Amanda's death. It's just all hit me like a, a loaded train. <laughs> It's been an incredibly long journey for you. Uh, every step of the way, you trying to get justice uh, for your daughter. When you heard the conviction come down, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Do you mean the conviction of guilty back in yes. On August? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. I was. I had my doubts because of how complex all the evidence was, and the jury had to process it. Um, the nine weeks of, I, I talked to a juror um, just last week who came to the sentencing weekend and she said it was so complicated, right? Everything was coming at them. They had two boxes full of binders with documentation and um, the Crown at the uh, in their closing submissions um, really put it together. They put it together with their PowerPoint, with their explanation in simpler language 
Um, and I believe that's what allowed the jury to um, process and, and put all the pieces together to do the guilty on five counts, right? We often hear that these cases are so difficult to prove in a court of law. So were you surprised when you heard the guilty verdict? Um, yes, I was. I, I was really, um, when, you, when you're sitting in court and you look at all the evidence, I mean, they had multiple witnesses from the Dutch come in and explain everything because it wasn't just now that the trial is over we can talk about it but um, all the evidence that they gathered at the time with their covert operations and their um, surveillance wasn't just for Amanda Todd it was for um, they had gotten report the Dutch had gotten reports that there was a man there that was um, victimizing lots of young girls right mm. And so, hence the covert operation. So all that information wasn't just for Amanda, it was for everyone, and, and that's what made it so um, diverse. And then they only found fragments of videos and images in his computers because he might have, he had software to purge um, other programs, right? You start to think, are they going to take this? Is, is this 100% or is this a glimmer of a doubt? right, with no concrete evidence, but just fragments. So I was hesitant. I was hesitant. But jury deliberated less than 10 hours and came back with guilty. Uh, what was it like for you when you realized that, uh, that Amanda was not the only victim here, that there were many victims? Well, I knew that um, coming into this trial because... Um, Ever since I found out that Aiden Caban had been arrested in 2014, and then there was a um, Canada decided that they were going to try and extradite and, and trial him separately. I was in Amsterdam. I was in the Netherlands in 2017 mm-hmm. for his trial against the 39 other victims. Um, the language barrier was kind of difficult in, in trying to understand it all, right? Um, but what I had heard over there, it was, it was horrific too. And people, individuals like that shouldn't be out victimizing. Um, he's an adult. Those, all those girls were, were children mm. and, um, victims as young as nine, eight and nine years old, right? Amanda was 12 mm. or 13 and, but eight and nine years old also. So that's some of that during sentencing week last week when, um, Justice Devlin read her reasoning why she was giving a sentence like that. All those things came into play. The lack of remorse, the lack of wanting, willingness to do any rehabilitation programs, um, the horrific ways that he victimized his, his victims, and um, the well-planned out way that he did it. It, it was just horrendous to her. So... It's very rare that a justice will go above what Crown is requesting for a sentence, but um, that happened last week in court. Mm. You so, said that, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you how you feel now if there's closure with this sentencing and, and, and the closure of this case, uh, but you said you're, you're still kind of in a fog. I am in a fog, and, and I don't consider it 
Um, if you want to use the word closure, it, it's the closing of a chapter. And yeah. we have another, we have more chapters to, to pursue and, and start, right? Um, I think many people don't understand or don't know is that we've had the trial, we've had a conviction, we've had sentencing. Now it's time to get Mr. Coban out of Canada and back to the Netherlands, but there'll be a conversion, a sentencing conversion hearing out there. Um, and the 13-year sentence of Mr. Coban will maybe possibly be reduced because of Dutch laws. So we're waiting to find out what will happen with that. If he were in Canada, he would get 13 years. Uh, mm. Possibly in the Dutch, it could be cut in half. Or uh, we don't. I, I just don't want to think about that part. But hopefully, um, their law court, the judicial system, will will know that they need to keep him in prison longer to keep um, kids and, and families safer. And I won't even say in the Netherlands; it's around the world, right? Mm. This trial and, and this journey for you has been awfully long, over and above the pain of, of losing one's child, and I, I can't even imagine what that's like. As you've got to this stage now, uh, this chapter, as you've said, what stands out for you in this process looking back on on, on the 10 years that, that it's taken for you to get to this, this stage? When Amanda first died, people knew that she had died by suicide and they relegated it to bullying and cyberbullying. And as the years progressed, it came out that she had been exploited and, and she was extorted by um, Aiden Caban, who was her sexual offender, right? Um, so putting an awareness out there on exploitation and sextortion has been really important to me. It's still something that is not talked about a lot, but it's starting to, right? There's Dr. Phil is dedicating two episodes next week on sextortion. Um, Canadian Center for Child Protection has always talked about exploitation and, and now sextortion, you know, we're, we're fighting to make sure that there's more awareness about it. Um, I, I'm seeing more workshops, more conversations about it globally. And so now that's starting, and that, that's a good thing because those, it has devastating effects due to trauma. Um, and, and in my case, Amanda died by suicide, not that Aiden Kavan was charged with her death, but he, uh, he strongly um, did things that, I guess, hmm. um, compiled to it. I'm having word-finding difficulties. Um, and, and the other biggest thing is with, uh, with this with the sentencing is that um, it has set case case precedence now. Yeah, um, yeah, there. In future mm. trials due to exploitation, and it set a high bar, right? So uh, if Amanda could see all this, she would be glad that she had a, a voice in it in some way. Oh, my. And you're responsible for that, Carol. Carol Todd with us, Advocate for Awareness on Internet Safety, Mental Health, and Online Exploitation. The journey continues for her. Mother of Amanda Todd, 44-year-old Dutch man convicted of sexually extorting Amanda, uh, BC teenager. Amanda Todd died by suicide a decade ago, 13 years in prison. Carol, thank you so much for your advocacy. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Uh, be well. Good luck in your journey. Thank you for inviting me. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. And you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
I'm doing well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I asked two really, really, really important questions, I thought, important questions today, and I've got the answer to one. Do you want to hear them? Yes. Okay, the first question was because everybody's yelling that Doug Ford should testify along with the Attorney General, the former Attorney General, or not Attorney General, Solicitor General, uh, at the Emergency Act Inquiry. I, I found out who invites you to testify at the Emergencies Act Inquiry. You just don't show up. Uh, you've got to be invited by Justice Paul Rouleau, who is a uh, liberal uh, and worked on John Turner's campaign and helped him pick half his cabinet. So if you want to know why Doug Ford isn't testifying, ask the justice who is running the Emergency Act inquiry. There you go. The second one was, where was the PM during the convoy? No answer for that one. All I'm getting is a secret location. What are your thoughts? Okay, well, for the first one, um, Doug Ford could testify. I wouldn't object either way. Uh, might be interesting, but I'm... Well, he wasn't what, asked to. No, but what would be... Obviously, so the, because they didn't feel the need for him to testify, because well, the OPP's there. And right, it's clear but, but that the, the Ottawa here, police was ignoring their intelligence. The issue here is, was the Emergencies Act required for public safety? Yes. And... For the same reason that, um, you know, I'm not sure who else needs to testify. The people who need, the people we need to hear from here are all of the police people, which we are going to hear from. They are the and ones we are, who And are, we are hearing now, and there appears to be quite a bit of dysfunction between the senior uh, police brass and the chief, the police association, and the city. I mean, OPP city. as well. I mean, Ottawa yeah. Police, OPP, what we need to hear from, they're the people who were there and will tell us over the next number of weeks, were they under the belief that Ottawa was about to fall? And that sounds like a hyperbolic, ridiculous statement. That's what the Emergencies Act is supposed to be there for, to, pre- mm. to, to allow the government to continue to function and to prevent the government for the country essentially from falling into the hands of people who would overtake it. And so that's what we need to hear from. I don't know that Doug Ford or frankly anyone else other than those who are in police or those who make the decision are in a position to declare whether or not there was a belief that the government or the country was about to fall. So Doug Ford, I I wouldn't mind if Doug Ford testified. I couldn't care less. I I think it'd be fine, but I I don't think he's going to tell us what the basic point of this. The only reason that a lot of people, it seems anyway, are testifying in this right now is to say this was a really big annoyance that really um, put a lot of people out and was, and, you know, as I've said before on your show, Scott, if this was in Hamilton, I I would agree that we would have been really miffed at trucks honking their horns all night and everything else. No question. Mm -hmm. But that's not what the Emergencies Act is supposed to be about. So you can bring in all the people you want to say, I had a headache. This was too loud. I couldn't sleep. All those things don't seem to me to really be at the core of what this is supposed to be about, which was, was this the absolute extreme, most extreme situation facing the government that our country was about to be overtaken? And I don't know if Doug Ford could answer that question. Great. He should be testifying. If Doug Ford can't because he was in Toronto, then I don't know what you're going to get by having him come there, except again to say it was loud and annoying.
Uh, the deputy chief saying, in retrospect, we should have given a lot more credibility to the intelligence that was being provided. January 13th, OPP warning the OPS of this situation, still no plan. Even a week after it was, the occupation started, there was still no plan. So it seemed that they just didn't want to take the information from the OPP. Well, I still have one more question, and we're not going to get an answer. I'm quite positive out of this because I don't think, honestly, I don't think it's the issue here. So I, I'm not criticizing Justice Rudeau for not getting to this. I don't think this is the point. But I still wonder, and I don't know the answer. Like, I truly don't know what I would expect the answer to be. If the prime minister in the early days, the early hours of this, had sat down with a few people from the yeah. the convoy who had requested it, would this have changed anything? Maybe not. I, I truly don't know. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that he could have cut the thing off by simply having a meeting, but we don't know. And I still think that, you know, if these were armed insurrectionists who were marching on Parliament Hill with pitchforks and torches, no, I would not expect him to be having that meeting. You don't negotiate with terrorists. If these were merely people who were coming to protest, you want to know something? Presidents and prime ministers have very often met with people who come and stage protests at either the Washington Mall or at Parliament Hill. That's happened very, very, very often. So I don't know whether that might have cut this thing off or not. We're not going to get an answer for that because that's not what this is about. But I think it still remains an interesting question for next time, if there was a next time. Hmm. Could this have not even happened that we didn't have to be here? No, you poke the bear, and then you don't address it anymore. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thank you for the time. Be well. Hey, can I, by the way, make one quick plug for what's coming up yes. uh, on the show? Because one of the big issues that we're going to have in this election, and I know some people are already tired about talking about the election, one of the biggest issues is now that we're hearing that we could end up at some point in this next term with a strong mayor system. Uh, we're talking to an, a lawyer with an expertise in municipal affairs about what exactly all this means, because we've heard a lot about it. And if you're going to go cast your vote, I think it's important that people actually know who they're voting for for mayor if a strong mayor system comes in. Just wanted to make that plug. All right. Have a great time tonight. Thanks for the uh, cut in, Scott. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Christian says, worry less about who did what. Worry more about what they did, or in some cases, what they didn't do. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.